Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We're going to go against the grain for a couple of hours, as we do every weekday, except when we take vacations sometimes. <laughs> but it's not that often, folks. You can handle no, it. No, it's not. We've got a lot to get into today. We have more from the some of the Americas party, <laughs> some wow. of the Americas going on in L.A. We are going to ask Jamal Thomas, our correspondent there, uh, what's happened on this, uh, I guess, officially the second day of the summit. Do you think that the administration is in any way embarrassed by this? Uh, yes, I think that I think it could be that that is the biggest so. story. That's sort of the story of the summit, especially because, I mean, I'll talk to Jamal about this, but, you know, Joe Biden's up there going, the Americas should really, we should congratulate ourselves on our democracies. You know, democracy is vital in the region and we've got lots of them and we might not always agree, but we're democracies. So we come together and resolve things through dialogue. And it's like, where's the dialogue? If you are not inviting people to talk. Right. We're going to celebrate democracy and everybody's invited Mm -hmm. except you, you and you. Yeah. And then Mexico says, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. If they're not going to be there then we shouldn't come either. And we say, uh, and you're not invited either. Yeah. And then also, that's not a summit. Yeah. And more, I also think it's been interesting. It's hard to get a, it's not impossible, right? I'm not alleging there's some conspiracy. Sure. But not a lot of, there are a lot of reports that do not say who didn't send heads of state. It was, you had to put it, NPR this morning said Mexico and several other countries. I read another report that said several other countries. I had to do some research to find what those other countries were. Oh, how interesting. El Salvador, uh, Honduras, I think Guatemala as well. It's in my notes there down in the segment. So, yeah, several other countries. Interesting. Yeah, so you have to look them up. So this is a flop. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. There's supposed to be a big announcement tomorrow about a new uh, framework to handle migration. We will see what that is. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, who, who knows what was ever going to come out of it. Yeah. We'll see. But it does seem like... Uh, yeah, a, a bit of a snub for the United States is is an, an overall message of this summit. Yes, indeed. So we will get into that. We are going to talk about a, a new report on prison conditions in the United States a little later. I am fascinated by the phenomenon of some of the worst people and corporations in the world being able to use Ukraine as a as a PR springboard. Oh, so true. Elon Musk is one. Uber is a new one Mm -hmm. that I had not known about. We are going to talk about this later in the show. We're going to talk about the way Chesa Boudin's recall in San Francisco is being framed and and look at how that process actually works and who is actually being rebuked. You know, when when we say this is, oh, this is the people admonishing the left. Uh, To uh, to what extent is that really true? Do you remember several years back when California had a referendum to... um, to either approve or to disapprove of gay marriage and, mm-hmm. and the disapproval won. Mm-hmm. Well, it turned out that the financer of that was the, uh, was the Mormon church, right? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. So we really do have to ask ourselves, who finances these referendums and these recalls? Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this wasn't just out of the grassroots or where San Franciscans just barely into Chesa Boudin's uh, uh, term of office yes. decided, oh, this guy we voted overwhelmingly for two years ago. We decide we want to throw him out. He's so bad we can't even wait for the election. We're going to do it right now. And I also think it's important to remember that there's a, there can be a big gulf between like our experience of crime and discourse yes. about crime. 
crime. Yes. Right. And they, they do not always move in tandem with each other. That's Why right. is that? Hmm. Who, who does that support? Uh, maybe we'll talk about that. Uh, of course, the January 6th hearings are going to start on primetime tonight. I mean, I think it could will. Some of that will be interesting. I think right? so too. some of that will be really interesting. If you want to watch in, it, it's on every network except Fox News. Yeah, I mean, I do I do think that it will. It has the power to change people's minds about what that was. You know, I do think it is. It is scarier to see what happened in person. Right. I don't I don't fault anyone for feeling concerned when a mob, uh, you know, ran into the Capitol with some people, you know, sort of wandering around as tourists, but other people really uh, very angry. Right. With at least the desire to do some property damage. I, I think you can really credibly dispute just how organized any of that was. But like, yes. I don't think I don't think it's fair to mock people for for having been a little worried. It was definitely scary. You know, there, there were some people who were just sort of caught up in the excitement about it. There were some people who probably genuinely realized that they weren't or didn't realize rather that they were doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. And then there were some people who meant harm to our democracy. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least to individual to both yeah. individuals there yes. and, and to the democracy. Um, I also want to talk about a couple of the headlines that I've seen this week. It didn't get a lot of attention in uh, the U.S. press, but in the European press, the visit of the Belgian king to the Democratic Republic of Congo has gotten a bit of media attention. Congo DRC was, of course, once a Belgian colony with notoriously brutal and grotesque policies enacted against its native population. Um, The monarch apologized for those actions two years ago, and now he's visiting Congo for the first time as king. And much is being made about, you know, a path forward, reconciliation, et cetera. Here's what I want to draw attention to. Here are a couple of headlines about this visit. One is King Philippe urged not to lend legitimacy to Congo's controversial president. Here's another one. In Congo, Belgian king tries to move past the past. And I just have to say, you are a hereditary monarch of Europe legitimacy you this guy that i went in to see like if i could find how how his house ended up you know holding the the monarchy of belgium this dude is a from the saxe coburg gotha house right so i i guess one of his warlord ancestors managed to establish dominance over some patch of land and then they have been just hanging on for centuries right (laughs) so who is he to move past the past Right. And of course, this new president of of Congo DRC, I gather, came to power through what critics are calling dodgy processes. I know absolutely nothing about it. Very well. Maybe so. Right. But the idea that an unelected European monarch can lend legitimacy in a in a sane world to anyone or can be an advocate for moving past the past is just farce. It's so silly. Do we really want to move past the past? I mean, an apology is one thing, but after what the Belgians did to the Congolese. Yeah, I mean, grotesque and, and brutal are, are really inadequate to describe what happened there, which, you know, I think people have become familiar with in recent years. It's just so silly and just shows how much we we sort of passively accept this as normal when it is just old and white. So yeah, this this dude it can lend legitimacy or not to someone who at least pretended to be elected, you know, just just so. You know, the Greeks had a monarchy. It sort of came and went and came and went. Uh, the the kings of Greece were not Greek. They were Danish and German. And uh, we threw them out 
couple of times, and then they came back a couple of times. And finally, the last one we threw out and said, uh, don't ever come back. And so there were negotiations for, for decades to allow the guy to come back. He finally came back. He's old. He's sick. He's broken down. Um, but he returned all of the money that he took. And he lives in a little house in a southern suburb, you know, with everybody else. Cool. Yeah. Great. It can, you can you can get rid of monarchy. Yeah. You, you really can, can. And it works out fine. Yeah. Seems like it's okay. Or you can cut their heads off. But like, yeah. you know, you have a choice. Right. Man. I want to get to this story. I want to get to this meaningless story, but we also have real, we also have real news. I'll just do it. Okay. We'll just, we'll just do the really quick, John. Let me, let me, here's a quiz for you. Okay. Uh, flamingos. Okay. Pineapples. Garden gnomes. Hot tubs. Yeah. Pompous grass. Okay. Uh, an ankle, an anklet or toe ring. What do all these things have in common, John? Sounds like Miami Beach. Yeah, no. I mean, you know this. They are all apparently, this is according to The Sun, and then it picked up by the uh, New York Post, which then expanded on this article and included multiple sources. These are all ways you can tell if your neighbor is a swinger. Oh. Pompous grass in the front yard. You know that, like, fluffy, tall right. grass? Yeah. yeah. Hot tub. I have some people to text. <laughs> Several of my me. friends have hot tubs. I think my mom has a pineapple on her doormat. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. The, the toe ring and ankle bracelet is really fun. Also, apparently, if you have a black ring on your right hand, this is a signal uh, to, to everyone, all in sundry, uh, that you might be into swinging. Uh, the story tells us swinging is on the rise with as many as 15 million Americans habitually swapping partners. Habitually. Yeah, to spice up their sex lives. 15 million's a lot. But I guess, you know... Yeah. It's one yeah. out of every 20 people. I just am looking at this going, these are all such normal things that you see in yards all the time, which yeah. is not to say that like, you know, regular people all over the place are not are, are not necessarily swinging or doing whatever with their sex lives. But just like, I'm pretty sure there are a lot, there are a lot of ladies wearing toe rings who don't want to be asked if they yeah. want to sleep with your husband. Like, right. leave, leave them alone. They're just hippies. Ay, ay, ay. I love a flamingo. Yeah, they're fun. Sure. So swinging, I guess. So there you go. <laughs> well, I guess it is. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, my God. I just thought that was great. It was such a huge story. How to tell if your neighbor's a swinger. So if you see a garden gnome in your neighbor's yard, don't not talk to them because it's a weird decoration. Don't talk to them because they're, they're a little pervs. <laughs> I have two little bits of news um, that I wanted to raise. Uh, we mentioned briefly yesterday that a young man uh, with a gun was arrested near the home of uh, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The Washington Post has a, a longer article about this today. And in the meantime, very, very quickly, this young man, his name is Nicholas John Roski, 26, of Simi Valley, California, um, was charged with attempted murder. Already, he's been arraigned and formally charged and is in jail in Rockville, Maryland. Uh, but the reason I'm bringing this up is this this is not as clear cut as as we originally thought. This kid is obviously mentally disturbed. Mm -hmm. um, he was the way he was caught was he was a couple of blocks away from the house and he called the suicide prevention hotline and said that he was going to kill himself uh -huh. and then mentioned to the operator that his life had no meaning. He wanted to make a name for himself. And the only thing he could think to do was to kill a Supreme court justice uh -huh. because he was upset about this impending Roe v. Wade decision. Um, 
he told the operator where he was. The cops went and got him. He had a, a gym bag with a loaded Glock and knife and zip ties and all kinds of things. He drove all the way from California. Mm-hmm. And when they asked him if he understood what he was doing, um, his response was kind of sad. Let me let me find it here. He said that he he thought that he understood what he was doing, but that his thoughts weren't really clear. So he couldn't really say definitively. And um, the news, of course, they, they went and found his house in Simi Valley and they've interviewed his parents and his neighbors. And everybody's shocked because they said, great family, hardworking, middle class people. The kids got some problems, mm-hmm. some mental and emotional problems. This isn't him. It's just one of these freakish occurrences. Yeah. So, you know, we have to wait and see how this plays out. And um, I think our, we're going to talk a little later about the new yes. hotline that is being launched. Yes, and indeed. whether this is going to, you know, have the possibility of changing some of these outcomes. I mean, this at least yeah. wasn't as bad as it could have been. Yeah. No, it, you're right. It's not as bad as, it's, as it could have been. The other but, story I wanted to raise was last week we told our, our listeners that um, Greek authorities had seized an Iranian ship. And they were going to take the oil and send the oil to the United States because it was some sort of violation of sanctions. Okay. Uh, A Greek national, the the Greek National Court of Appeals this morning ruled that that is illegal. Right. It's piracy. You can't just grab a ship off the high seas, force it into port, steal its oil, and send it to the United States. All right. You can't do that. Go, Greece. Good yeah. job. So the court ordered the ship to just go on its way. Good job. Do you want to hear just a little bit of bad news that we might Uh-oh. expand upon later? Okay. Bad news for the British uh, economy. The British Chambers of Commerce said the UK economy will grind to a halt before shrinking in the second half wow. of the year. Yeah, growth for next year is predicted to be 0.6%, and inflation is predicted to hit 10%. Wow. And okay. so, you know, Boris Johnson might have survived Partygate, but if this plays out, it seems like it could be the end of a government that is held responsible for it. Of yeah. course, it is interesting that the BCC is not blaming Johnson's government, right? It is blaming Vladimir Putin. Of course. Of course. Of course. Consumers and businesses will pay a high price for Russia's invasion of Ukraine and persistent delays to supplies from China. I do find this at some point, this consistent framing uh, really gives Russia a lot of power. You know, this is really like who knew that Vladimir Putin without um, firing a shot at at any country in, you know, Western Europe or the economy to its knees. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if this if this was an outcome that could have been predicted, you wonder if people might have behaved differently. If this is if this is Vladimir Putin's doing, if he is he has created the inflation crisis everywhere. You know what? Russiagate must have been real because this country sure does have a whole lot of uh, international power to affect, you know, to shake governments and the rest. I, yesterday on Facebook, a guy I went to high school with posted, he's a local yokel. He still lives in our in our hometown. And he said, I went to Ohio yesterday, which, you know, you can throw a stone from our house and hit Ohio. Yeah, I went to Ohio and gas was four seventy nine. And then when I came back to town, it was four seventy seven. And Ohio used to be twenty five cents a gallon cheaper than Pennsylvania. What happened? So I know what happened. I wrote. The Republican governor of Ohio raised Ohio's gas tax last year. And his response was, 
His response was Putin apologist, okay. Putin propagandist. Okay. That's right. That's right. It's weird how Putin controls uh, state and local governments in the United <laughs> States. I don't think we should let him do that, John. I think that's bad. How come nobody's thought of that? It feels like a violation of our sovereignty. All right. We have a lot to get through in this hour. So we're going to take a quick break here and come right back. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are going to get into some stories about human rights, uh, civil rights abuses in the U.S. and overseas. We are going to talk a little bit about the strange, but uh, I think terribly effective PR backdrop the war war in Ukraine is providing for really some of the worst companies in the United States. That's just... uh, I said insult to injury yesterday, but I think this is another case of it here, too. Joining us for these conversations is Dan Kavalik. He's a labor attorney, a human rights activist, and an author. His latest book is Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. I want to start with Julian Assange, just because I I think... Sort of without me realizing it, the UK government and Home Minister Priti Patel blew past what I thought was a deadline for deciding whether or not to extradite the WikiLeaks publisher to the US. Um, Am I correct that there was an expectation that this decision would be announced by May 31st, uh, but that date has come and gone and, and we've heard nothing. And in the meantime, Assange is in what I think you could call, you know, an even crueler state of limbo than he was before, because at least before there was a schedule. And now it's just indefinitely waiting for this, this minister to say something. Um, I was heartened to see the OSCE recently um, make some statements Uh, about his case with their representative on freedom of the media expressing concern regarding the impact of his extradition on media freedom and investigative journalism. Uh, The representative called on the Home Secretary not to extradite Assange and said the fact that someone who disclosed material of public interest might face a long prison sentence could have a grave and lasting stifling impact on investigative journalism. She also reminded OSCE participating states that they have adopted a set of commitments that consider freedom of expression and access to information as fundamental human rights and a basic component of democratic societies. Um, And so I wanted to just ask if you have any more idea than John and I do of what exactly is going on with Assange's case. And also, you know, the OSCE in its in its press release noted that it represents 57 states, uh, more than a billion people, including the U.S. and the U.K., and should we take these statements more seriously? Well, we should, obviously, and they're not the only ones saying this. I mean, Amnesty International is also opposing the extradition of Assange. Mm-hmm. A number of human rights groups around the world. Obviously, this is a travesty of justice, and, and, and frankly, the most unjust part uh, of this is that basically— there's no case against Julian Assange. Mm. They want to try. The U.S. wants to try him for things like treason, and he's not a citizen of the U.S. I don't know how he could have, you know, yeah. uh, committed treason. Anyway, so the game plan has been all along simply to keep delaying this 
and to keep him in jail. Yeah. For him to rot in jail under tortuous circumstances, right? He spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. His parents have said that he is in terrible psychological and uh, physical shape. But to even call it a limbo is really not, doesn't really accurately portray it. Mm-hmm. It's more of a hell, a living hell. Yeah. And I think the game plan is simply to have him rot in jail uh, forever, right? I mean, one of the, you know, essential parts of proper due process is a speedy trial, right? Because if you're innocent, you should go to trial and get let off the hook quickly and be released. Mm-hmm. Never been the game plan for Julian Assange. No, absolutely not. Uh, I also think it's very interesting that according to ABC Spain, former U.S. Secretary of State and former CIA Director Mike Pompeo has been called by a Spanish court to testify about alleged plans detailed in a major Yahoo report last year that the U.S. government had sketched out scenarios uh, in which they kidnap or assassinated Julian Assange. The request is in connection with a trial examining the conduct of security firm UC Global and its founder, David Morales. Uh, the firm is accused of passing intelligence to the United States, you know, s- spying on Assange while he was in the Ecuadorian embassy and, and passing that intelligence along, doing things like, you know, getting getting DNA from his uh, son's diaper, et cetera. Um, so Pompeo is apparently going to be asked about whether they received intelligence from this firm. Former director of National Counterintelligence and Security Center, uh, William Ambanina, has also been called to testify. And I wonder, I mean, I wonder if, how serious we should consider this request and whether you expect either of these men to comply. And then also, I mean, Mike Pompeo is sort of assumed to have political ambitions of his own. So what happens if he ignores a court request in Spain? What happens to those political ambitions, which, you know, might include European travel. Yeah, well, I think it has to be taken seriously. You might remember it was a Spanish court that issued the warrant for the arrest of General Augusto Pinochet. Right. And he was arrested, I believe, in England uh, based on that warrant. Mm-hmm. It has to be taken very seriously. You know, and people like Henry Kissinger take these things very seriously. He's been afraid to travel for some time because he's afraid he might be arrested under such a warrant. So, I think it has to be taken seriously, and I think Pompeo will take it seriously to the point where he may not travel to Europe mm-hmm. uh, in order to not be arrested. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, obviously this would impact if he wants a national office, I mean, if, particularly if he wants to run for president, it's going to be tough if he can't travel to Europe, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, this has to be taken very seriously. And, and I find it quite exciting, actually, that, that they're doing this. Uh, sorry, I know John is yeah. a comment to make. I was surprised that this didn't this came out like five days ago and it really didn't get very much attention because no. the U.S. No, press does not like to ta- pay very much attention to Julian Assange. Sorry, John, go That's for okay. it. I wanted to ask Dan. Dan, you're an attorney. Uh, let's say Assange is extradited to the United States. Is there any way that the likes of Mike Pompeo can keep from being subpoenaed to testify? Uh, Can Assange's attorneys uh, force him to testify on this assassination or kidnapping uh, plan that he had? Oh, I think they absolutely can. I mean, uh, of course, Mike Pompeo will raise some type of executive privilege, right? Sure. That for this sort of thing, uh, for him, if he was involved in an assassination plot, first of all, that would be considered enacted as ultra virus, meaning he would not have authority as secretary of state to do such a thing, right? 
And so he would not have any immunity for that. And in any case, he's no longer Secretary of State. And so courts would be very reluctant to shield him um, from that sort of uh, subpoena. So, yeah, that could actually that could absolutely happen. Uh, maybe they'll even subpoena Donald Trump himself. Wow. Uh, you know, right. Or Biden himself. You know, we'll see. But I mean, I think that's probably one of the reasons they're afraid to actually carry through with the extradition, because it really could open up a can of war. Worm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is. It does get I mean, absolutely, Dan, I agree with you. This has been the plot all along to just sort of drag this out, drag this out, have no resolution until Assange dies in prison. Right. But there was at least there was a sort of cover for it while legal processes were underway. You know, defense is collecting evidence and make both sides are making statements. And then you go to the next step and then you go to the next step. It's sort of been like blowing past this this deadline and now just hearing nothing from Preeti Patel is kind of blowing the lid off the whole thing for anyone. You know what I mean? Like if this, if this is how it ends, it couldn't be more blatant. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, I don't know. It's, it's a gall that is, uh, you don't see that often, I think. Well, I agree with you. The sad part is I don't think, I mean, to be totally, you know, honest, I don't think enough people care. I mean, yeah, that's the terrible thing. I mean, it should be, it should offend people's conscious, uh, consciences, but, the truth is, it's not getting enough, um, you know, media play for people to care. And frankly, his character has been assassinated yeah. pretty successfully in the media. And so even people that otherwise would defend such a person are not. Yeah. Um, and they don't even know why. They just know somehow he's a bad guy, according to the press. You know, so uh, that's the sad part of this. I mean, they're hoping he will kind of die uh, quietly and in obscurity. And the truth is that could happen. That could happen. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about uh, justice in the United States now, because I, I want to talk about this decision on the sentence of Jessica Reznicek, who I don't know if it's Reznicek or Reznicek. Anyone has an idea. Uh, but she, along with activist Ruby Montoya, uh, described in public in 2017 a series of actions they'd taken to sabotage the Dakota Access Pipeline. This was, of course, before it was carrying oil, right? So it's not like they caused huge oil spills. No one was hurt by their actions. But after their public statement, Reznicek was indicted on nine federal charges, including one count of conspiracy to damage an energy facility. And the rest were all about using fire to do these crimes. In the end, in a plea deal, all but the conspiracy to damage an energy facility were dropped. But as a Rolling Stone article points out, the energy infrastructure charge can render a private commercial company's enterprise a matter of federal concern. So this was in 2019, and that is what seems to be a sticking point here. Reznicek was sentenced in 2021, and at that time, a judge decided to add a terrorism enhancement to her sentence. The enhancement is applicable to crimes calculated to influence or affect the conduct of government by intimidation, coercion, or retaliation. And the enhancement increased the original recommended sentencing range from about three to four years to 18 to 20 years. And so because of this, the judge was able to sentence Reznicek to eight years in jail and look like she was being lenient. So Reznicek appealed and she just lost. She appealed on the fact that her acts did not target the U.S. government. They targeted a private corporation 
But the appeals court did not bother to consider that. It just said if there was an error in sentencing, it was harmless because the original judge had said on the record she would have imposed the same sentence with or without the terrorism enhancement. And so I wonder, Dan, how significant is this decision, right? Because you could say it sort of codifies a certain conflation of government and private interests and, you know, codifies them sort of against the interests of citizens. Well, the appellate decision would not codify it as such since they didn't deal with the issue. Okay, right. Not to, and, and by the way, courts of appeals especially will go out of their way not to resolve a constitutional issue if they don't have to. So mm-hmm. that's it here. Right. So I don't think this has any precedent in terms of that. But I do find it, of course, disturbing. These terrorist enhancements in general are ways of uh, criminalizing peaceful political dissent. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what this is about. So if you 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 might recall when people went to protest at Donald Trump's inauguration, a bunch were charged with terrorism. Mm hmm. Now, a lot of those charges were dropped, but you can keep people in jail for a long time on those types of charges. And obviously, the <clears throat> district court judge did use these terrorist enhancements against her. So, I, I, you know, I just think this is a slippery slope towards um, criminalizing political activity in this country. Is this does this point to a a fundamental flaw with these kinds of enhancements or should we just be much more careful about their application? I think that there's an inherent problem in there in mm-hmm. there. And, and, and by the way, it's inherent because that's the intention of these. Right. Yeah. If someone's actually engaged in terrorism. You don't need terrorism enhancements. See, these enhancements are to bootstrap. Uh, you know, huge penalties upon uh, conduct that otherwise would not receive a huge, mm-hmm. right? So I think inherently these uh, are, are meant to and will curb political dissent in this country. Yeah, I mean, that certainly seems to be the the point of them. Uh, I, I think that Ruby Montoya, who was the her uh, ResNSX co-actor there, is trying to take back her plea deal, saying that she was coerced. Um, and I think it's because of the, the possible application of these terrorism enhancements. The other interesting thing in this case is the role of Congress. Uh, ResNSX team uh, issued a press release on Monday when the decision was made and pointed out that federal prosecutors only pursued terrorism enhancements against her after 84 congressional representatives wrote a letter in 2017 to Attorney General Jeff Sessions requesting that she and other protesters who tamper with pipelines be prosecuted as domestic terrorists. Uh, It also pointed out that those members of Congress have together received a combined $36 million in campaign contributions from the oil and gas industry. And so, you know, this is Congress saying people who interfere with pipelines going through their communities, threatening water sources, threatening the water sources of vulnerable populations. We, you know, we, we want to keep those uh, those companies flush so they can keep giving to us. And we want these people treated as terrorists. I mean, how should we respond to this kind of behavior? Yeah, well, it's very disturbing because it's politicizing a criminal prosecution. Right. And what it does, it breaks down the separation of powers, right, between Congress and the judiciary. Mm. Of course, the founding fathers were particularly concerned about the judiciary being bullied because it doesn't have either the power of the purse that Congress has or the power of the sword 
uh, that the executive branch has. And so here you have Congress really, you know, uh, forcing a prosecution of someone, as you say, based on their own uh, lobbying concerns. Um, we have to be very concerned about this because, again, this means that an otherwise fairly benign event, which is being prosecuted, can be politicized and lead to, you know, years for someone in prison. Yeah, I mean, eight eight years for the kind of sabotage they did. I think I read one one thing they did was like take a coffee can punch it full of nail holes, fill it with gasoline, light a match. It's not like they were buying, you know, uh, uh, tons of fertilizer, making, you know, making serious bombs. And again, didn't hurt anybody. So, yeah, property damage, property damage in the, you know, as uh, as a protest is going to get you nearly a decade in prison. That's just awful. Yeah. And again, we even see this, frankly, with the January 6th prosecutions. I mean, People who literally just were strolling through uh, the congressional building are, you know, are being put up on terrorist charges. And I know people are upset about what happened on January 6th. But I think in principle, again, we have to be concerned that people who individually are engaged in pretty benign acts are being treated as terrorists. I I don't think it's a good precedent. And I I, I think we are entering a very dangerous phase here. Mm -hmm. I also want to talk for a second about um, how. The worst people and companies in the world are getting to use Ukraine as an opportunity to enhance their images. And I am not talking for once about weapons contractors. Uh, The European version of Politico had a big story about Elon Musk and Starlink, about how Starlink changed the war on the grounds to Ukraine's benefit. So it just feels like a little bit of a puff piece for Elon Musk after he's been dragged through the American press a little bit over the the whatever uh, whatever the state of his acquisition of Twitter is at this point. But the other one that really got under my skin is this announcement yesterday uh, from the World Food Program and Uber. So the World Food Program has contracted with Uber to deliver food and emergency assistance to people in urban areas of Ukraine. Uh, Uber said in a press release that it issued in partnership with the U.N. agency that they're uh, they're collaborating to let the World Food Program use its smaller vehicles to deliver relief items from warehouses. And this apparently is not even new, right? Uh, The World Food Program had delivered food from a warehouse in Dnipro to other areas using Uber. And now the program has a presence in Lviv, Kiev and two other cities. And I just think like, well, I mean, one. I don't you're talking about urban areas. I, I just what kind of conditions are these drivers driving in? You know, Uber is Uber is a company that is actively working to erode protections for workers in the United States. So what kind of partnership is this for an organization that is supposed to be sort of altruistic and about just feet feeding the world against all odds? How much are these drivers getting paid? Like what? I don't know, Dan. I think this is just this just sort of like exemplifies for me the state of this very weird conflict, right? Where, you know, it's it's sort of playing out on the stage of the Grammys. Uh, you have, you know, Uber and the World Food Program getting to sort of shake hands and announce a partnership. Uber gets to make itself look good. And like all the while, actual people are dying, right? It, it's just weird to me, Dan. Yeah, no, of course, the whole thing is very strange. You had, of course, Bono making a 
you know. Oh, has Bono gotten into it now? Oh yeah, he he had a concert. Him and the Edge uh, in a in a subway or in a bunker somewhere in Kiev or whatnot. So the, everyone's jump on, jumping on the bandwagon to get you know um, a little more fame out of this. And of course, the thing with Uber actually that strikes me the most is that um, basically what's happening is if you're giving money to the World Food Program, even either as an individual as part of charity or governments also give money to it. Basically, what's happening now is you're subsidizing Uber, right? Yes. It's a private company. They're getting government and charity subsidies to do what the charity is getting paid to do, right? Mm -hmm. They're supposed to find a way to do this. And by the way, like in Pittsburgh, for example, I'm part of a program called 412 Food Rescue where they have thousands of volunteers who do exactly this, who yeah. up and go out and give food. That's how this should work. Or it should work, you know, generally speaking, I don't think they deliver to people's homes, right? They usually show up with a big truck and people come get food whatnot. Yeah. I mean, one, it's a publicity stunt for Uber. And two, it's a waste of money uh, that could be going directly to getting food to people. And, you know, to the extent that this money is coming from the U.S., because the U.S. is, of course, a huge funder of the UN. The US is also, of course, the major funder of this war in Ukraine, right? With the most recent $40 billion package. They they like to pretend it's not all just going to the military and maybe not. Maybe it's going to Uber. But it is, you know, once again, it is this cycle where this money is, if you, you know, are taking a sort of traditional view of, of federal budgets and not the modern monetary view. If you're taking a traditional view, this is money that could be used for other things, but instead it is being taken from Americans, either in reality or just as as the excuse our government will trot out to us down the line, taken from Americans, passed through a couple of companies and uh, or um, uh, international bodies, and then given to a company that is an American company working actively to make the lives of Americans worse. I mean, it's just it's like it, this is sort of how it's all ending up. It it is it's just. It's wild to me, and I don't know I don't know how to stop it, and I don't know how people don't see that it's just sort of becoming like cartoonishly criminal. I mean, I guess not literally criminal, but I think it should be criminal. Yeah, it's a very cynical system. And I think a lot of people see that. I, you know, I talk to people who just say they won't give to charity because they see these, these things happening. You know, Haiti's the best example of this. Remember the, you know, International Red Cross raised over a billion dollars. Yes. Giving after the earthquake, and remember, there was a report that showed out of the billion dollars, they were, they built six homes in Haiti. That's true. Yeah, that's public knowledge. And and there were a million projects like that. You know, where the all the money ends up going, you know, for high salaries to people, you know, mm -hmm. at the Red Cross or at the Clinton Foundation. Everyone knows this now, right? I yeah. mean, this is totally corrupt. And what what it means is people are just not going to give the charity because they know it's being misused and misread. And it's so sad because, of course, the idea charity is good. You know, giving to people in need is good. The idea of it is good. But somehow it's just like the the American, you know, the American experiment in sort of privatizing, privatizing and now gigifying everything is just proliferating. And it just continues to make these really nasty people and their nasty businesses even more powerful at our literally at our expense. Yes, this unfettered capitalism now infects everything, as it would, you know, and um, yeah, it corrupts everything, including now charities. And uh, yeah, I mean, and again, I think people are getting wise to it. And it is very sad, but it is something that, 
needs to be resisted and dealt with on a systemic level. Yeah, and recognized, right? I think re- recognized for what it is, right? I, I think it. I think for a lot of people, they just sort of can't believe their their eyes and then move on. So. Yeah, that was a Dan. We could go on all day about this, but we can't keep you forever. That was Dan Kavalik. He's a labor attorney, a human rights activist and an author. Do you want to tell our listeners where they can get your most recent books and and all of your others? Yes, you can go to skyhorsepublishing.com and find my author page has all my books and where to buy them. And you can find me at Twitter at Daniel M. Kavalik. Thanks so much for joining us, Dan. We'll talk to you soon. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back with some news from the summit of some of the Americas. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, checking in on what's going on with that triumph for the Biden administration, the sparsely attended party happening in L.A., the summit of the Americas. No, I guess I guess people are there. People are there. And even for the the actually pretty many heads of state that didn't come, uh, they sent delegations. Yeah. A lot of foreign ministers, I'm sure. No embarrassment for this administration. Joining us from California is Jamal Thomas. He's a political analyst and co-host of Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Hi, Jamal. Hello. How's it going, guys? Are you doing okay? Welcome We're doing back. great. Um, I want to just ask, I have some specific questions for you, but just to start generally, what, what happened yesterday at the Summit of the Americas and, and what's been going on this morning? So Kamala Harris has been found. Okay, thank God. <laughs> she gave a statement. She's safe. Okay. <laughs> so people were worried. They're like, where's Kamala? Where's Kamala? She's here. She gave a very quick statement. Um, yesterday was interesting. So we, I did two things yesterday. I went to the events itself, meaning proper, like watching the heads of state, like Blinken come in and get his statements, um, and the ministerial meeting. I also went to the People's Summit, mm. almost like a counter of this one. Mm-hmm. Now, Later on the evening, there was the thing where Biden comes in. It's almost like a starting of the ceremony. Yeah. He comes in, gives a speech. Um, I forget the other gentleman. There was another gentleman who heads of state who came and gave a speech. And um, there was a great performance by certain bands. Hmm. In fact, the, the, the part of this that is weird is the way they put it together. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is shambolic, to put it. Modeling. Okay. For example, we were going through, it took us over an hour. We were trying to get to the press area. The thing said press. We tried to get to the press. The cop says, yeah, you can't come through here. Okay. The cop says, you got to go to the other one. We go to the other one. The other cop says, yeah, you can't come through here. Then the cop says, hey, um, press is not allowed back here with your badge. Another guy from the State Department comes and argues with the cop. The cop <laughs> says, yeah, no. The guy goes back. Another guy from the State Department who's higher up comes. He argues with the cop. He goes to the other place where we were at first and says, okay, you guys are going to come through this way. It's been that. Where the information and everything else has been difficult to ascertain and everything else. Well, that's moment. Yeah, Jeez. I guess that's not different. It sounds a little bit like the Biden administration, to be honest. What you want us to just mail people COVID tests? Oh yeah, hey guys, we're going to mail you all COVID tests. It's a great idea that we just came up with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and here's the other thing. So, at, sitting at the event, my experience here has been a bit of um, confusion. 
Yeah, I use the term confusion. And because oftentimes what they're saying in response to the context that they're saying in is ironic and yeah. it's often antagonistic to each other. So, for example, we're sitting in California. California has, what, hundreds of thousands of homeless people. Mm-hmm. Many people in California, because many of these people are like me, right? They're talking it. They're chatterboxes. Mm-hmm. Anybody you talk to, they'll talk to you. They're affable. And they would talk about how... Oh my God, I can't believe the homeless situation is like this. They would talk about how the government is not paying attention to it or it really keeps it off the thing. And you have some people who say they basically left, meaning going to Tennessee or going to Texas because they don't want to deal with it now. Mm-hmm. of that. Joe Biden and his administration will stand up there on stage and say, we are going to do economic development. And this has been a success. And we're getting rid of poverty. And we're, and you're, you're it's like, you're like, wait a minute, that sounds great, but we're in California where you have hundreds of thousands of homeless in these shanty towns all over the place, mm-hmm. or not just to America, but to the state itself. How are you making this argument about economic development, progress, money that you're investing into the region and how all of these nations are coming together? And then you add to that, well, Mexico is not there. They're like a, a like major trading partner. Bolivia is not there. Yeah. Um, Honduras is not there. And to make it even worse, make it even worse, they would say, we are going to have security um, in regards to the way we do our elections, and we're going to have pro-democracy devices. You think to yourself, wait, is the OAS the device you're talking about? Yeah. Security issue? And you guys overthrew basically Bolivia with the OAS? Right. Triggered the events that led to that coup. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Astonishing. Like, it's like they, they say things, and it's almost as if everybody ignores the context in which those things are being said. Yeah, I think that's I want to say the California sort of formal homelessness count is a hundred and sixty one thousand, which I think we can uh, assume is a pretty dire undercount. And so, yeah, having having it in the context of a state where there are just enormous shanty towns. Also, the other thing I see is, you know, I, I mentioned this at the beginning of the show, Joe Biden sort of congratulating the Americas on its on their democracies, right? Or our our democracies, our continent is full of democracies. And while we don't always agree, we resolve issues through dialogue. And you go, okay, well, what, where was the dialogue with these countries that you decided not to invite? And then also, you know, in his address last night to open the summit formally, I know that Joe Biden, uh, you know, was, was telling the gathered government representatives to invest in workers in the middle class, again, excluding governments that draw much of their support from workers and to some degree from the middle class. Just, yeah, ig- ignoring the context. It, it's just sort of like that's power for the course. If you want to pretend any of this is legitimate, I guess. In that way, the entire event. Like, yeah. Like everything that I've said it because you have. So the people's summit is basically a protest and yeah. a criticism of the summit. And I got to be honest, their criticisms are not all that wrong. I mean, when you're sitting in on events like the OAS thing I was sitting in yesterday and they were like an indigenous woman talking about how great the OAS is on preserving democracy and election integrity. I'm like, miss. You're an indigenous woman. They remove Evo Morales, who is literally integrating the indigenous community into the society where the fascist regime came in, was against them doing that. Yeah. And you're an OAS trigger that. Like, how are you saying this stuff? And even to hear Biden talk about, like, um, security. And it's like, and you think to yourself, wait a minute. We knocked over Honduras. Yeah. Put in a narco president. But we're now trying to prosecute for crimes. Where is the security of states, the security of nations in the context of this? Yeah doesn't seem to be here. And yet that's what a statement and the rhetoric goes. It's it's astonishing. Uh, I I wonder if you've heard anything. There's supposed to be a big new migration 
uh, framework or philosophy unrolled tomorrow. Uh, I'm seeing it's called it's called a groundbreaking integrated new approach with shared responsibility across the hemisphere. I wonder if you are getting any sense there of what that will be. And again, you know, the irony of unveiling a new migration approach when you have the heads of governments of some of the uh, states with the most irregular migration to the U.S. sitting this out. You know, I'm talking about El Salvador. I'm talking about Honduras and other Central American states. Any sense of, of what this migration package might be? Yeah. So Biden introduced this last night when he gave his speech. Um, people gave their song One World and everything else. Biden came in and he basically made the point of saying we will defend our borders. But he says that after he goes into saying basically we're setting up a new scheme of migration where we're going to have safe um, and how did he put it? I'm looking for the exact phrase of it because I wrote it down when he was saying it because I was like, okay, what does that mean specifically? He's basically making the point of saying, look, our countries are going to have some kind of new scheme where we're going to have safe, stable um, migration between the governments. Like, okay, what exactly does that mean? Yeah. I didn't quite understand, like, meaning a lot of the things they say here, they say it in almost a coded language where you have to get into the details to figure out exactly what they're talking about. He never, you know, in none of this, did they necessarily go into details. Um, I imagine they're going to release something that's going to explain it. But he definitely made the statement basically saying we are going to have a device or new device that is going to allow safe um, migration, somehow regulated migration um, that allows people to go through um, the various places. Mm-hmm. Strange. He didn't necessarily go into details in regards to what that meant, but he definitely presented it when he mentioned it um, yesterday. Yeah, I'm just wondering, the involvement of, of more parties just makes me wonder if it's going to be something like our uh, our ag- agreement with Mexico, where we would sort of pay Mexico to house migrants. Uh, who wanted to come to the U.S. who we were refusing to allow in. I mean, maybe it's just sort of, we will see. I will predict that it could be something like the U.S. just giving a bunch of money to Central American governments, uh, militaries and police forces and saying, we encourage you strongly to not let people get here and we are going to call this cooperation. Exactly. That's what I was thinking, too. Yeah. When he was giving a speech, I I was writing it down. He says, tackle climate crisis head on. Quote, when I think of climate, I think of jobs. He says, to base human desire to share, oh, for dignity and security. Then he says, mutual commitment for safe migration through the region. Yeah. Safe and orderly migration. And I put, what does that mean? I like, I literally wrote out, what does that mean? Yeah. Would enforce our borders. Meaning, after giving the speech about migration and movement, and we're going to have it safe, and it's going to be orderly, and we're going to create a new device to do that, it's like, we want to enforce our borders. It's like, all right, I have no idea what you just said or what any of that means. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this tends to be much of a muchness. Let me ask also, a lot's being made in the press about... Uh, I mean, the U.S.'s anxiety about China is extremely obvious. Uh, U.S. anxiety about China's increasing influence in what uh, we sort of term our backyard uh, has been increasingly obvious. And there's a lot being made in the press about how this event is intended to help the U.S. strengthen its influence in Latin America and edge China out. And I don't know that China has been mentioned explicitly very much, but I wonder how much it feels like a subtext there. So I have not heard them mention China, mention Ukraine um, in the speech um, last night, which, again, at this point, I feel like it's just, you know, that's what they do at this point to try to justify or at the very least um, spin this notion of right. pain. Because I swear to God, everybody I've talked to, 
talked about it. The guy, when I was driving over here, he said he paid more in gas than it is for the car itself. And yeah. he's like, and, and he's basically saying, he says, look, I'm not trying to back Putin up. He says, but Putin is a man. and He's an old school. And we were screwing around over there. And it's like, I'm just letting the guy talk. I'm like, yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah. Like, so, but they never mentioned China directly or explicitly. And by the way, it's not going to work. The, the problem is, China tend to focus on win-win solutions. That's almost like the mindset. That's what makes them fascinating, to be honest. Regardless of what goes on in government and everything else, the secretary, that's none of my business. Mm-hmm. Have a tendency when you're functioning with other governments, win-win solutions. So when you're trying to function with Bolivia, they're like, okay, we're going to help you guys build and pr- um, produce the lithium that we need. And so you're going to get workers and experience and everything else. We're going to get the lithium, win-win. Well, that's not the relationships. That's the way the U.S. and United States um, U.S. deals with their relationship, mm-hmm. deal with it in win-win scenarios. So when other countries around the globe are like, yeah, we're going to sign on to the Belt and Road Initiative. Oh, yeah, we're going to sign on to China. They're doing it because this is in their best interest. So from a U.S. standpoint, well, how do you, who don't necessarily give deals like that, meaning you're not giving deals from the standpoint of win-win. I mean, for God's sake, think of what they did with this um, situation. They could have bought in the other nations. They could have did that. And instead, what's interesting about that, too, is it's a show of weakness. Like, all things being equal, when they made the decision, okay, we're going to have some of the Americas, I often say, you don't go beyond um, what your position can bear. Mm-hmm. Don't take action that your physical position can basically tolerate. Because otherwise, you're going to show yourself you're going to fail. As a, almost as a rule of thumb. And so when Biden comes out and says, we're going to disinvite those other countries, okay, fair enough. He believed that he had enough political clout to be able to get everybody else to come in and basically ostracize yeah. countries that he didn't necessarily want. Yeah. It ended up happening, though, he did not have that clout, he did not have that capability, and many of the other nations decided not to show, which, again, ends up as a show of weakness as opposed to a show of strength. What he should have did was just let it come just to avoid that. And so the thing that everybody is talking about is, hey, he got snubbed, he got snubbed. If you put in 2020 Summit, all of those articles about Biden gets snubbed, Biden gets snubbed, yeah. they got snubbed, et cetera, as opposed to whatever thing that they actually wanted people to focus on. Yeah, I have I have wondered about that. And I wonder how much more, you know, this is it feels like an administration that has gotten a lot of insults. You know, Trump was obviously a, a clown and a buffoon, but I don't recall him really getting insulted to his face, uh, basically, by by world leaders. And yet, you know, this is pretty much seems like this is what's going on with our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Obviously, you know, the the governments of El Salvador and Honduras and, of course, Mexico and some others felt em- empowered enough to not show up to, to this event. You know, it does seem as though. This is maybe the the beginning of of what is going to have to be a public acknowledgement that uh, certainly American prestige is is quite rightly in decline. Uh, But how quickly does American sort of power, soft power or hard power, follow this decline in prestige? I think that is an interesting question. Oh, a thousand percent agree with you. And understand why. I mean, the governments that basically didn't show up were the governments that the United States have tried to overthrow. Mm -hmm. So if you were Bolivia... And you see them trying to ostracize Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. Well, what about you? Yeah. Meaning they were targeting those governments, meaning when the coup government failed and um, Arcis took over um, in Bolivia, well, they started prosecuting the atrocities that were taking place. What did the U.S. do? The U.S. is like, hey, we don't like the fact that you're prosecuting those fascists that basically overthrew the government without help. Yeah. So it's like if you're Bolivia and you realize, so wait, you can ostracize those countries, we could be that country. Mexico could be that country. 
You know, meaning all of those countries recognize that they themselves could be targets in the same way that the other countries are being targeted, in which case there's like, yeah, no, that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, very quickly, Jamal, any pro? I know that there's the, the People's Summit that's underway nearby. It's offering a sort of alternative. Any protests there that you're seeing at the um, Summit of the Americas? I know someone tried to approach the motorcade and was, uh, you know, was was taken away by security pretty quickly. Have you seen any other attempts at protesting the event? Yes. So it is tight here. Mm-hmm. There was police. They basically surrounded the entirety of the building. Um, there was somebody who was screaming at Biden in the summit, meaning when Biden gave up, got to give a speech, the person stood up and started screaming at him. I think I got video of that, but I can't know, it, you know whether it's on the thing. I couldn't necessarily hear what they were saying, but she was quickly removed. Biden was unflapped by the whole thing. Mm. Um, I've talked to several protesters who were outside of the building. One had to do with Nicaragua, basically saying, we want our freedom. When I asked him what that was, he wasn't all that clear about what that was. Other person was on um, Biden and immigration, basically making the point of saying these guys are playing around with immigration. They need to do something about it. And yeah, the People's Summit, they're going to have apparently a larger scale protest on Friday, if I'm not mistaken. But they were also protesting um, over the course of the days. Mm. Yeah, they're protests out here, but the security is basically keeping them away from the site itself where they can, you know, get in, actually get to the leaders. The leaders are basically being insulated. Not very surprising there. All right, that was Jamal Thomas. Uh, Jamal is co-host of The Morning Show here on Radio Sputnik. You can hear him every morning. We will check in with you tomorrow, and maybe that new migration package will be unfolded, and, and, and we will see if any of our predictions are correct. Uh, we'll talk to you later, Jamal. Thanks so much for your time. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. We told you yesterday that San Francisco District Attorney Cheza Bodine was recalled by voters there who decided that his, quote, go easy on minor crimes philosophy uh, just wasn't working in that city. Now it seems that Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon and New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg might also be in trouble. Both have been heartily criticized by police, and Bragg has been in a feud with New York's new mayor, Eric Adams, over rising crime. Voters will eventually have a chance to weigh in on the issue, but in the meantime, crime is up and voters are angry. And nationally televised hearings begin today on Capitol Hill, where the January 6th committee will begin presenting its findings on far-right groups who were involved in the riot. Witnesses will include a Capitol Hill police officer who was seriously injured that day and a British documentarian who was embedded with the Proud Boys and who filmed much of what happened that day. We're joined by Ted Rall, award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is The Stringer, and he's the co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rall and Scott Stantis. Welcome back, Ted. Thanks for having me, John. Always good to have you. Thanks for joining us. Hey, the media today are making a very big deal out of the recall of Chesa Bodine. They say that it's a rebuke to the left, that the soft on crime policies of these George Soros backed DAs didn't work, and that's why crime is up. But what they're not talking about is who funded this recall in California. Uh, and do you think that California's recall law is, is overused? Is this something that other DAs ought to be worried about? Uh, 
let me start with the second question first, which I often like to do uh, due to my uh, shortening memory these days. Um, for sure, the uh, law in California is overused. Um, you know, from I think of the recall of former Governor Gray Davis, which led to the election of Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, uh, you know, to be fair, Schwarzenegger uh, exceeded expectations as a, as a governor and, and did a much better job than I or many other people expected. But Gray Davis didn't do anything wrong. Uh, you know, that law exists right. really uh, in order to get rid of people who uh, the, leg the legislature doesn't have the courage to impeach after a scandal, uh, someone who's clearly not performing the job, uh, someone who just should be removed and, and the legislature's not doing it. Um, but this that's not what's happening. Gray Davis was, uh, you know, not a corrupt, was not corrupt. Uh, Boudin wasn't corrupt. Uh, there was no scandal associated with him. Uh, and so basically what it's amounting to is a form of election annulling in the same way that the routine impeachment of American presidents is uh, is trying to do, although not successfully yet, but I'm sure that will happen soon. And uh, the, the, the law, it's, it's a toxic law. It should be repealed. I mean, yeah. there are ways to remove a, uh, a corrupt or incompetent political leader, um, and that you know those those ways are sufficient. I think the recall law solves a problem that doesn't really exist. Um, in terms of the funding, you know, uh, it's it's interesting about Boudin. Um, you know, basically the the, the Republicans uh, that that backed this recall effort through a lot of dark money um, and also uh, real estate interests. I, I kind of think they're, they're cutting their noses off despite their face. I mean, first of all, the Republican Party in the state of California is pretty much uh, non-existent. It's almost like the, yeah. uh, you know, the Green Party nationally. Uh, it, it, they have no, it, they're not going to be able to put really uh, be likely to routinely elect Republicans in that state. It's a Democratic state. But I mean, also the real estate interests, uh, I don't really know that, the, I think they're going after the wrong guy. I, I don't think, uh, I think what's really happening here is that we have a national case of blue flu. Uh, the, I think the cops are angry, the police unions are angry about the even the, the threat to defund the police, because at this point, it's mainly a threat. The police never really have been defunded in any significant right. way. Um, it's just words, yeah. right? So they just don't like the phrase. So it's like, don't mess with us. So they're, they're, they're sitting on their hands in places like where I live here in New York, uh, in San Francisco, L.A. They're just not responding to crime. So it's kind of hilarious. They're creating the problem. The cops are not defunded. There's many of them. There's too many of them in, in most of these cities. And But they're not doing their jobs. So crime's going crazy. Um, and people are reacting to that. And the cops say, well, if you gave us more money, then maybe we'd be able, it's like a protection racket, you know, nice city you got here, be a damn shame if it burned down. Um, but they're not, you know, they're the problem here. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of causes to this, um, to this current crime wave. But I think first and foremost is the refusal of the police to do their jobs. Oh, that's a great transition into my next question. We see in the New York press practically every day articles about people being attacked in the subway, pushed onto subway tracks, randomly stabbed, randomly shot. Crime is up, they tell us, significantly in New York. The New York Post would have us believe that it's because of the DA's no-cash-bail policy, but some psychologists say 
it's actually an after effect of the COVID lockdown. Maybe it's a combination of things, a lack of access to mental health care, a poor economy, stress from COVID. What do you think? Why is crime up in New York? Or am I wrong? Is it that crime reporting is up in New York? No, crime is definitely up in New York. Uh, I have lived uh-huh. in this city the better part uh, pretty much almost consistently since 1981. Um, and so I've, I've seen the bad times of the uh, early and mid-1980s. And it's like that again. Uh, this might feel worse. The only thing we're missing is cool graffiti in the subways. Hopefully we'll get that right. back. Uh, the rest the rest of it is, um, no, it's dangerous. You know, I went to a couple months ago, I went out to check on my car and uh, I had to dodge bullets on my on my nice leafy Upper West Side Street, uh, you know, there's someone who was shooting randomly down the street and me and another dude had to jump between two cars. It was like, wow, it's just like the time I was in Afghanistan. And um, the, the, sub, the subways are dangerous and sketchy. Um, you know, people, New Yorkers are scared and rightly so. It is extremely unusual to get an entire ride on the subway that lasts 15 minutes without being accosted by someone who is deranged. Um, and and to a point of being terrifying, every car has people sleeping in it. Um, you know, it is it, the, 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 there's so many boarded up um, boarded up businesses. I mean, it's it's a really bizarre situation because you have the rents going up, um, you have uh, inflation going up. The city's never been more expensive to live in, but it's never been a crappier place. Maybe you know, in the late seventies during the you know Ford to city drop dead era. Uh, then it was, you know, might have been worse. I wasn't here, uh, and I was back in Ohio. But yeah, no, the, the crime is out of control. Um, and again, you don't see the police. There's no police presence. When you see them, they're loitering. They're ta- They're hanging out, talking. Yeah. They're talking to each other. They're hanging out on their cell phones. I've never seen a more relaxed group of people in my life. Uh, they are never working. They, even the traffic cops aren't doing anything. Some tickets are being issued for parking, but gridlock has become a huge problem. That was a major moneymaker for the city of New York, uh, writing t- you know, major you know, $400 yeah. tickets for blocking the Don't box. Don't block the box. Yeah, n- right. not anymore. Uh, you know, so now, like rush hour is, you know, traffic is completely seized up in Midtown Manhattan. Does not move. It's a, you know, it's just a parking lot, and so the co- I think the cops are deliberately standing down, and uh, this is just a a way for them to obviously not work and uh, you know try to shake down the taxpayers for more for more money. You know, I was just telling a friend of mine last night. I I loathe Rudy Giuliani. I really do. There's there's pretty much nothing that I like or respect about Rudy Giuliani. But when he was mayor, he really did clean the city up. Um, You could walk through the train stations and you were okay. You could ride the subway and you could you were okay. A lot of uh, of the uh, street crime went down. Um, He certainly took a lot of heat for his zero tolerance policy for petty crimes. But it really did clean the city, uh, clean the city up. Now we've got a former police captain who's the mayor of New York. Um, he at least wants to have the reputation as being Joe Tough Guy. Are we looking at returning to some of those Giuliani policies of the 90s? Well, I don't 
don't know that Eric Adams could do that. I mean, Giuliani ah. was mayor from 1993 to 2001, two terms, right? And I always like mm-hmm. to say that there's a there's kind of two Mayor Giuliani's, uh, but. 93 to 2001 uh, coincided with one of the biggest economic expansions in U.S. history. And, Good point. And New York City is the capital of finance and Wall Street. So the money was pouring into city coffers during those years. So, you know, yeah, streets were getting repaved. It was, um, you know, it was easy for government to be responsive. Uh, Giuliani, Giuliani had a, a call-in show, and uh, I remember calling in uh, to, to complain about a, a stairwell in a steep public park, Morningside Park, that was really uh, in bad shape, and I was worried that one of my elderly neighbors was going to fall down. Uh, you know, the next day, park workers were out there fixing it. When the city has money, wow. they can fix problems. Uh, Giuliani sort of got loopy uh, in 1997 for his second term. That's when he became, like, obsessed with the squeegee men and the, the, right. the jaywalking crackdown. That's when he started cheating on his wife and hanging out at the at the four-star hotel. And, you know, he, he kind of, beca- you know, moved to the far right and became loopy. Before that, he was kind of viewed as a Republican in name only. Um, so, right. you know, I mean, he, and of course, then he tried to seize power he, after 9-11. He tried, right, he tried after 9-11. He tried to remain, he tried to keep the mayoralty, you know, like we can't live without him, America's mayor. So, I, I, look, Eric Adams doesn't have the, you know, those deep pockets. Uh, he doesn't have the city, the city coffers uh, busting with Wall Street cash the way that uh, Giuliani did. So I have some sympathy for him there. But the problem is that the, the, the job of the city, the, the mayor of New York, is 90 percent about communications, something that Ed Koch understood implicitly. Um, it's not really, you know, it's not really an imperial mayoralty. Uh, the, the city has to really get a lot of help from Albany and get money from the governor, uh, especially for things like mass transit. And, uh, you know, that relationship is super important. Uh, the governor in this case is not interested in New York City. She's way upstate in Buffalo. Um, that relationship isn't very good. But Adams' real failure is that he is not communicating uh, in an effective way with the people of the city of New York. He's not on a, he, he's clubbing at night. He's not night. Yeah. He's not out on the streets greeting commuters the way Ed Koch did, asking how am I doing. He's not. He doesn't have that connection. And I think that's why his approval rating is now sub Kamala Harris. The most recent poll wow. I saw was that his approval rating was twenty nine percent. This guy took office January first. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a. It, He's it, barely been mayor. Barely been mayor. Uh, and I'm going to say I don't know anybody who can stand him. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're young, old, black, white, rich, poor. Everyone thinks that he's just a phony and, uh, you know, and just basically someone who's a showboat. He's not he's not, yeah. you know, doing the work or if he is, he's not able to communicate or show that he's doing. Hey, let's talk about L.A. for a, for a couple of minutes. Uh, you spent a lot of time at the Los Angeles Times and you have a lot of experience with the LAPD. Uh, very <laughs> little of it. Good. Yes. Uh, yesterday's LA Times had an account of Sheriff Alex Villanueva's so-called victory party, in which he led chants of "You're next, you're next," director directed at the DA there, George Gascon. Does Gascon face the same kind of problems that Chesa Bodine did? Is crime as much of a problem in LA as it is in San Francisco or New York? Uh, the trend lines in LA are are not, are there's no comparison. Uh, the trend lines in LA are a slight uptick. Violent crime is pretty much unchanged. Property crimes 
you know, I think are, but I think what's happening with voters in LA is there's kind of a conflation. The Angelinos, and I still know a lot of them, are not really that worried, or they're not that scared of being beaten up. They're worried about being mm. robbed, and they're really and, and they're really skeeved out by all the homeless people peeing and peeing in their shrubs and sleeping on their sidewalks. Uh, the homeless situation is bad throughout the state of California. It's cra- completely crazy, and government is paying no attention to it at all. Um, but in Southern California, you know, in large part because of the weather, um, it is worse than it is in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I think, um, you know, that's really the issue. And, you know, voters are, they kind of conflate these things. What they're looking for is sort of return to some order. And I think, you know, maybe where what the press is getting wrong and, and what Republicans are not understanding is, like, they, you know, they're kind of presenting this as, we want, a, the people are choosing between a binary choice of weak on crime, woke DAs who let, you know, repeat offenders walk free time after time after time, or you can let crazy steroidal, uh, you know, war veteran police officers run rampant and beat up people of color, and we're all supposed to be okay with that. I don't think either one is what voters want. I think voters want cops who do their job, who maintain law and order, who don't brutalize or abuse the population. Um, you know, people who are clearly career criminals should be, uh, you know, kept away from the public. But, you know, again, I don't think, uh, you know, minor pro- minor crimes, uh, you know, anybody has, not very many people want to see those people rotting in prison. So I think there's a sort of like a common sense middle here that is not being covered much in like the opinion pages of, of newspapers or, uh, you know, their equivalent yeah. online. Ted, um, let's move over to uh, the the January 6th committee hearings that are going to begin tonight. Every major network except Fox News is going to carry them live. And in prime time, um, of course, several Fox News anchors have been at least indirectly implicated through their text messages to the White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Uh, The January 6th committee is going to begin with their findings on the far right groups that were involved in the violence and in the planning for more violence that day. We're talking really about the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers and one or two other ultranationalist and white supremacist groups. A lot of the leaders of these groups have already been arrested and charged with really with serious felonies. What do you think we should also expect to hear from the committee tonight? You know, I'm kind of wondering how they could have many surprises up their sleeve at this point. Right. Um, you know, we've already seen extensive documentary footage. Um, the guy that was embedded in with the Proud Boys, um, you know, hit a lot of his video right. turned up already on the HBO uh, documentary. Um, I think it's called like Three Hours at the Capitol uh, or Four Hours at the Capitol, something like that. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's already been extensive testimony um, you know, I, I would be surprised if there's any kind of, you know, any big news here for anyone who's paid even a little attention to this issue. I'd also be surprised if the ratings for this are terribly high. Uh, you know, right. my impression is that uh, everybody's mind is already made up about January 6th. Yes. Uh, you know, Republicans think, you know, kind of don't think that's that big a deal, that it was just a sort of a riot that got a little crazy. And anyway, look, Black Lives Matter did that much and more, according to them. 
Um, and, you know, and I think uh, Democrats who are agitated about it, you know, are not going to get any more agitated. I mean, they may watch it in order to rile themselves up. Um, what will we hear from Congress? I mean, look, I, I think the FBI and, uh, you know, is, is, has already been long, has been concerned for, for several years now in a real ser- important, serious way uh, with white nationalists and other extremists it's yeah. ever since Charlottesville before. And look, they've been paying right. attention since the Oklahoma City bombing in 1993. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like they've been asleep at the switch. Uh, the media hasn't paid much attention to them, really. Um, you know, I think federal law enforcement's been all over it. Um, so uh, there's like, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know what more really there is to do. I mean, at the risk of sounding like the NRA, this seems like just one of those cases where you, we have laws and we should just enforce the ones we have and arrest people who, you know, who commit more of these kinds of acts. And yeah. I mean, what else can you do? I mean, it's not like there's, there's something not much. new to do. Well, do you expect any any action against any of the groups as groups? Um, for example, Canada recently declared the Proud Boys as a terrorist organization. Can you imagine Something like that happening here? I mean, you can imagine it, um, you know, but the United States doesn't have a very good record of sort of picking and choosing terrorist groups. I always think about like, you know, the the, yeah. the, the Kurds, right? Like the PKK are, uh, you know, a State Department t- designated terrorist organization. However, they're also American allies, um, you know, in Syria, right? So yep. it's, uh, you know, it's kind of like, well, that, that's weird. And domestically, I think there's a risk of, uh, declaring, you know, let's say you declared the Proud Boys a terrorist organization, which I think, by the way, they would have a very strong legal uh, ability, you know, basis to challenge that legally, um, which yeah. could really embarrass the federal government because they would probably, I think, the Proud Boys would probably prevail. But let's just say that um, they did that. It would, you know, it it would build them up. It would increase their reputation. It would it would be kind of like a, you know, kind of cool for them uh, almost. Um, you know, I think there's a risk of, uh, you know, of the Streisand effect when you issue when you're the government and you bring more attention to what are, you know, fundamentally pretty small groups. Do you really want to make them bigger by giving them that kind of publicity? I don't know. Right. Ted, in July, we are going to have a new national mental health hotline number. So instead of calling 911 and the cops come to shoot you while you're having a mental crisis, you can call 988 and that's meant to, here's the quote from the news, change the conversation around suicide and reduce the stigma around seeking help for mental illness, unquote. So rather than routing to the police, if you dial 988, the calls will route to the organization that handles uh, calls to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. Suicide, of course, is the second leading cause of death among people aged tw- uh, 10 to 34. But part of the problem has been, like I said, when somebody calls 911 uh, about a mental health, mental health crisis and the police become involved, the situation often ends with a person who is in crisis dead. Do you think this new number will change that? And And what other steps could be taken to help people who are having a mental health crisis? Well, you know, intuitively, I would think that this wouldn't make much difference. But I think in this case, intuition, my intuition anyway, is wrong. Um, There's no question that I think there's will. This is a a positive development. I think it'll help Um, the certainly relatives of people who are are, and friends of people who are 
going through a mental health crisis will be able to uh, call that number instead. Um, if you look, you know, I, I've known people who've worked, um, who've manned the phones at suicide crisis hotlines, and mm -hmm. those phones, those phones ring all day and all night. Uh, people yes. do avail themselves of them. Uh, they do save lives. Um, I think uh, a lot of times people, they don't, you know, they, they're not quite so hopeless that they, that they just, that they're not quite ready to do it. And for those people, it's going to save them. And so, uh, you know, I think this is a, you know, it's, it's a great thing. It's going to require a lot more, a lot of publicity. Um, you know, they really, there's going to need to be like an ad council campaign that's sustained so that everybody gets to know in the same way that it took a while for us all to stop calling the seven digit number for our local police and calling 911 instead. Um, it's, it's, there's going to need to be a big, pub, uh, you know, public relations campaign. Yeah. But I yeah. think, I think it's a good thing, um, in terms of what else there is to be done. Look uh, here, we need mental health parity first and foremost. First, we need national health care. Second, and secondly, uh, mental health should be risk should be ranked completely with a hundred percent parity to uh, physical health uh, issues. Um, you know, you should be able to get free talking therapy. You should be able to get free meds if they're prescribed by a psychiatrist. Um, you know, you should. Uh, we, we are going to need. I mean, basically, there is no help whatsoever for people who go through, say, a job loss or who just have a, yeah. you know, um, you know, a, a chemical dependency or people who are suffering through clinical depression or, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, most everybody listening here to us now uh, is going to suffer at some point in their lives from a mental illness. And, uh, you know, so it's like, it, this is everybody. It's not someone else. And, uh, you know, our, our society is, this is, it's just a huge hole. We're just not doing anything about it. And we're just sort of like leaving it. I mean, you know, the problem with mental illness is that you don't have good use of the one thing you need in order to, to be treated, which is your brain. Your brain's not working right. So you don't have the ability to step out of yourself and tell yourself, oh, my God, I've got to do this and that. You can't. Mm -hmm. That's why you need help from society and from your friends and from your family. And they have to have the, you know, the, the ability to like not go broke. Uh, you know, sending you to a therapist. So my last question to you, and I apologize if this is a little bit out there, but th I mentioned in the uh, intro to the show that this young man was charged with attempted murder yesterday in Maryland for approaching Justice Brett Kavanaugh's house with a loaded gun. He freely volunteered to the police that he was there to kill Brett Kavanaugh. Two hours later, a protest took place at Kavanaugh's house. Well, I was invited to speak at a protest on Sunday night at Attorney General Merrick Garland's house. I declined. I have a personal problem with protesting at people's homes. Um, you know, I remember on, on the day I was arrested with Fox News and their big truck out in front of my house with a spotlight coming in the windows, scaring my kids. My kids are crying. My neighbors are coming out to see what the commotion is. It was a terrible experience. And I wouldn't want to protest at anybody's house. What are your thoughts on this? Because it seems to be something of a trend lately. It's become far more common, I think, than it has uh, ever been in the past. Uh, but having been targeted by the media, it just seems to me to be bad form. What do you think about these protests at people's homes or confronting people in public in restaurants or on vacation with their kids? 
Well, John, I hope you had blackout curtains. I, I, that, <laughs> that's a crazy. Oh, it was story. awful. Oh my god, terrible. Um, so you know, look, I think it. Look, obviously, it's legal to protest on a public street anywhere in the United yes. States. And so they're not breaking any laws. But just because something is legal doesn't mean that you should do it. And I think it is bad for him. I mean, I've had the same thing happen to me. I had New York City firemen after 9-11 come to my apartment, again, scaring the crap out of me um, and and my wife at the time. Uh, you know, and it was, you know, I literally thought they were gonna come up and kill me. Uh, you know, these are guys with axes. Um, You know, I mean, it's there's no um, I don't think I don't think it's right. Just like the uh, the 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 politicians who've been approached and harangued while eating dinner in Washington, D.C. restaurants. uh, You know, I think there's a there's a line to draw. And, you know, you shouldn't tear. I mean, let's face it. When you go as when you form a protest outside of someone's private home. Um, you are terrorizing the people who live inside that house. Uh, 99, the person who lives there knows that 99% of the protesters are not going to hurt them physically, but they mm-hmm. also know that in any randomly selected group of, say, 100 people, there's one or two people who might be off and might decide to go a little too far. So yeah. it is an act of terrorism. And, um, you know, parenthetically, I don't think this this kid is really going to go to jail for uh, attempted murder because that's not attempted murder, right? That's no menacing. I agree. Threat. I agree. Depending on I, the, exactly, yeah. it's menacing. So, yes. but that, it's, that's eight months. Yeah. So, and, and not you know, twenty years. And I'm fine with that. But uh, it's like uh, certainly, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's scary. And you know, I mean, the, the, I don't think. Look, neither Supreme Court justices, uh, nor talk show hosts, nor cartoonists, nor anyone else should have to worry about that. I mean, it, like you should be safe and sound in the sanctity of your home. I also think parenthetically that it's way too easy to find out where people live. Um, oh, you know, it's, yeah. there's all these services online that, uh, you know, for a small fee will disclose, uh, people's home addresses and home phone numbers. Those things should be shut down. Uh, they should be against the law. Oh, I totally agree. Well, I am sorry that we're out of time. Ted Rawl, thanks for joining us. Ted is an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is called The Stringer, and he's the co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. You're listening to Political Misfits here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back after a short break. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Joshua Schulte is a CIA whistleblower. At least, that's what he's accused of being. Schulte is awaiting trial for releasing CIA documents to WikiLeaks that are now known as Vault 7. As a result, he's been held for three years in the notorious Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan. I say notorious because much of the MCC has been shut down. It's not fit for human habitation, but Schulte is still being held there. According to a recent filing by his attorneys, Schulte is being held in a concrete cell the size of a parking space. The cell is also home to rats, mice, cockroaches, and other vermin. The water in his cell is either freezing cold or boiling hot, 
there's no heating, there's no air conditioning, and the toilet can only be flushed after what's in it has dissolved. Otherwise, it'll flood the cell. Schulte, isn't that awful? Schulte's occasionally allowed to meet with his attorneys in the visiting room, but there's no bathroom there, and guards give him a plastic bag to urinate and defecate in. He hasn't been outside or been permitted to look out a window for three years. And this is happening in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, which is supposed to be better than conditions in state prisons. We're going to talk about this and more with Dr. Chelsea Moore, Policy Manager for DreamCorps Justice. Welcome, Dr. Moore. Glad to have you. Hi, thanks for having me. There is a new report out on prison conditions. And, you know, we follow these issues here on the show through Prison Legal News Magazine and the Human Rights Defense Center. Tell us a little bit about what this report says and why it's so important. Yeah, I think, you know, the report tells us, I think what so many people who are living behind bars in the U.S. already know, that the conditions are inhumane, that they're deplorable, and that they're not oriented and towards rehabilitation. Um, and I think that the more attention that we can get to these conditions, the better that we can understand the way the system is set up, not to rehabilitate folks, um, but to just warehouse folks and keep them there in conditions that make them actually worse. Um, and so I think, you know, we need to have a better understanding of, of what's going on inside prisons across the U.S. and not just in the Bureau of Prisons, but in the states and at the county yes. levels as well. We've we've heard horror stories coming out of prisons in Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and these these prisons and prison systems are sued. They routinely lose and then nothing improves and they have to be sued again. How broad of a problem is this? It's it's not relegated just to the deep south. No, you know, we like to think that sometimes the problems are just with, you know, the notorious prisons that we hear about in Alabama and Louisiana, uh, where the feds, you know, take over those prisons. But it's it's not. If you look into any prison in the United States, you are going to find um, instances of what you opened the show with, instances of the overuse of solitary confinement, people not seeing sunlight for days or weeks or years flooded cells, rodents, that happens across America, whether it's in the feds, whether it's in the state, or whether it's in county jails. And so it is a widespread systemic issue. You know, when I was in prison, I uh, you only get a choice between um, water and Kool-Aid, right, For, uh, as far as drinks go. Uh, on Sunday mornings, they have weak coffee, which is so disgusting I couldn't drink it. But water... Or Kool-Aid. Well, someone found a dead rat floating in the Kool-Aid machine. And so I never had the Kool-Aid again. So two years, I just drank water. Um, That's, I I was told at the time, that's normal in prisons all across the country. Uh, I've written extensively about uh, food served to prisoners that's not uh, meant for human uh, consumption. It's clearly marked on the boxes. Feed use only, not for human consumption. It's routinely fed to prisoners. Uh, we have um, we have diseases uh, that that spread very easily, not just COVID, but things like tuberculosis, for example, or hepatitis. And it's like nobody 
nobody does anything about it. You you have to just take uh, your chances. Joshua Schulte complained that um, he has a diagnosed congenital heart defect and has been not permitted to see a doctor in three years. He has not been permitted to see a dentist in three years and his teeth are beginning to fall out. Uh, this can't be just targeting of Joshua Schulte. This kind of thing happens all across the country at every level of incarceration, does it not? Exactly, yes, at, at, at every level. And how is this not a constitutional violation? It seems to me that the courts have ruled on these kinds of things repeatedly. Why is it not fixed? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the courts have ruled on these repeatedly, um, but they've also, you know, historically been very deferential to uh, the Department of Corrections and prisons. Uh, under this guise of these, this magical phrase, safety and security. Right. Right. Um, and this designation that the prisons know what's best to keep the public safe um, and that the courts don't, you know, they're not in charge of keeping up these prisons. And so there's this deference to the expertise of the prisons. And so as soon as the prisons say, you know, we're holding folks uh, for years in solitary confinement, um, they're not seeing the light of day for this, you know, however long. Um, but that's because they are a safety and security risk. We have to do this for safety and security. Um, so you see that dif difference. Yeah. You know, occasionally folks do win, um, you know, major cases where they say, actually, this is a violation of your constitutional right, be it access to medical care um, and be it, or be it access to, or reason to solitary confinement, overcrowding. And so we do, we do see those, um, but those are rare. Yeah. Fortunately, they're often ignored and there's this thought, well, they can just crop up again. And that's in large part, not to get too technical, um, but of the way that we've set up the prison grievance system. In oh my gosh, yes. With, <laughs> yeah, so the Prison Litigation Reform Act uh, back in the 90s just made it really difficult for people to... Uh, to um, file grievances about the conditions yes, um, that would eventually make it to the court. So there's this like bureaucratic maze that you have to make it through through the prison itself, which is the institution that you're trying to hold accountable. And if you can't get through that maze in the right way in the yeah. right time, then the courts are never going to hear about it. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on um, that the courts do not hear about and do not know about, and then layer that on top with the, this deference because of safety and security, and you've got a really tragic issue. I, I'm so glad you brought that up. I don't think it's too far in the weeds, and I want to add something to it. Uh, at the federal level, what you're talking about is called the BP system. So there's a BP 8, 9, 10, and 11. These are the names of the forms that you have to fill out. So a BP 8 is an informal request to... Fix something. Uh, you get in a little argument with your unit manager, and so you fill out a BP-8 and say, you know, uh, he refuses to replace the, the light bulb in the shower, okay? And uh, almost always the warden will say, uh, tough luck. Then you do a BP-9, which goes up to the warden. Say, you denied my BP-8, but I need for you to fix this, and then the warden denies you. And then you do a BP-10. That goes to the regional director, and then he denies you, and you do a BP-11, which goes to uh, Bureau of Prisons headquarters in Washington. Now, the problem with that, and the reason why this system doesn't work, is they have five days to answer your BP-8. They have five days to answer your BP-9. 
They have 30 days to answer your BP-10 and 60 days to answer your BP-11. What Josh Schulte did, because he couldn't sue for these prison conditions until he went through this process, the BP-8, which was supposed to be five days, they took 85 days and then they backdated it 80 days. This is what they do to everybody. They did the same thing to me. They do it to everybody. That's why it has taken three years to get through this process where he has to say, look, you know, I, my, my cell is full of rats and cockroaches and I haven't seen an open window in three years. I don't know what the sun looks like anymore. Now, that should have taken all of, you know, a couple of months to work its way through the process. Instead, three years have passed. So my question to you is, nobody's asking for club fed. And I hate that term because there really is no such place as club fed. Um, They're asking for just humane, basic living conditions. Why is this controversial in the first place? And who ultimately has the responsibility to ensure that prison conditions are humane? Are we lacking congressional oversight or state legislative oversight? Is this up to the courts? Is this a multi-level failure? What's the problem here? I mean, I think that it is a multi, multi, multi level failure, you know, so we don't really have congressional oversight over the, excuse me, over the BOP. Uh, the states don't really have a lot of oversight over what's going on in their prisons at the state level and the counties at the county jail level. Um, we don't have a lot of um, court issues with the PLRA and getting, and getting, um, getting attention to that, getting the courts to pay attention to that, getting them to rule justly on that. Um, and, you know, we ultimately, who's responsible is we, the people as yeah. democracy have to decide how we want to treat the folks who may or may not have caused harm and how we want to um, have public a public safety model that includes um, both humanity, right? It's mm-hmm. humane to have people have to grieve for three years, you know, not only on their living conditions, but their medical conditions. I've, you know, read stories and heard folks who are filing grievance after grievance to get an insulin pump mm-hmm. too late and they pass away. And they die. Right? Yeah. And they die. Because, yeah. Yeah. It's just not, it's not just rodents. It's literal medical needs that we're seeing. That's right. People are dying and they're dying on our watch. Um, and, you know, I think that we, we as a society really need to think about what are our goals for, for justice? What are our goals for public safety? And does this align with our goals? You know, does it align with our goals to have someone incarcerated, not have access to an insulin pump, go through a crazy bureaucratic maze and then end up dying because We've set up a system that doesn't care whether or not folks live or die. We have almost two million people incarcerated. Yes. yes, almost every one in one in two people has someone that they know and love incarcerated, and so this touches everybody. And it's time for us as a society to come together and figure out what this system needs to look like and how it needs to fundamentally change because it's not working right now. It's not working for the people who are incarcerated. It's not working for their loved ones and it's not serving public safety because we're not 
focusing on rehabilitating folks. We're focusing on making things miserable and worse for folks so they become angry and and uh, and resentful and, you know, unstable. Yeah. If you spend so much time in a rat cell with no access to light, nobody, even the strongest mentally strong person, is going to come out unscathed from that. You anticipated my next question. The Brennan Center, which does just marvelous work on these issues, notes that 95% of prisoners across America will eventually be released back into their communities and that poor prison conditions plus a lack of education and a lack of training make Americans less safe. People who have faced abusive treatment in prisons are angry when they're released and then they're released back into their communities they're angry and they're more likely to break the law again and to be incarcerated again. A long-term study of recidivism rates of people released from state prisons between 2005 and 2014 found that 68% were arrested again within three years of release and 83% were arrested within nine years following release. And evidence confirms that the irony of our, this great, criminal justice system we have, the longer someone spends in, quote, corrections, unquote, the less likely they are to stay out of jail or prison after their release. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, it's important to always consider evidence and data when we're thinking about how should we structure these systems. And so the evidence is showing us that the way that we are incarcerating folks, um, the way our justice system works is not actually promoting public safety. I've said this a million times. I'll probably have to say it a million times more. Um, but if, if incarcerating people like we do in the United States for as long as we do works, we would be the safest country in the world. And we're not. Yeah. And reports like the Brennan Center report show us that it's not because, you know, we have individually more bad people in the United States than other countries. It's because our justice system is perpetuating unsafety. It's making our, 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 our society less safe, our communities less safe. And so if we want a system that actually works, we really have to focus on the larger structures that are at play. But one result in people ending up in prison in the first place, you know, Amen. people have, Homes, people who have food, people who have jobs, people who have communities that care about them typically do not end up committing harms that will land them in prison. Mm -hmm. um, and so many Americans do not have access to those structures. And then when you get inside the prison, when you have these horrible conditions, when you have, you know, the Sometimes the BOP not letting people access programming like it's statutorily required required to. Same for the states. When you don't have access to education, when you're living in deplorable conditions, then you're not healing those harms that led the person to be incarcerated in the first place. And so they're not going to end up better off than they were before they came in. Almost no one ends up better off, even though we know that even if someone just gets a, an AA, right, just right. an associate's degree, they are almost 
guaranteed to never return to prison, and that increases with the VA, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. To access, access education. And then we have to look at the structures that are at play when people are released, because it's not just that the person's angry or, or that, they, that they have trauma that they're carrying with them. It's that they enter into a society that is structurally set up against them. They can't access jobs. They can't access a place to rent. They don't have access to basic needs. And so then what are they going to have to turn to? Systems that set them up in the first place to fail and end up in prison. And so we're creating these cyclical conditions with the way that we structure our our approach to public safety and prisons, and yet we don't recognize that these systems are in play and we're just blaming the individual. You know, when I got out of prison, I had to spend one day in a halfway house. There's only one halfway house for the federal for federal prisoners in Washington. It's called Hope Village. We used to call it Abandon All Hope Village. It's since been boarded up. It, the whole city block is just closed off now. But anyway, there were 200 men, just over 200 men, staying in this god-awful place. And they had a jobs board, right? Because they won't let you out unless you have a job. And so they had this jobs board and it had two jobs posted on it for, for 200 men. One was as a dishwasher at Fuddruckers, the burger place. And one was um, to dry off cars with a rag at the car wash. That was it for 200 guys. Otherwise, you're on your own. Well, if you can't read and you can't write, and you have no formal education, you, you don't have a, a high school diploma, you haven't gotten your GED, you don't know how to be an electrician or a plumber or a mechanic or anything like that, what are you going to do? You're going to do what got you in prison in the first place. You're going to go back to your neighborhood and you're going to sell drugs because that's the only thing you know how to do. And you know, our, our European allies are, are shocked when they hear news of our prison conditions. They're shocked that there's no education and that there's no training and that we just don't seem to care about recidivism. I mean, our prison conditions are the reason Julian Assange was originally not going to be extradited. You know exactly what I mean? Right. Like that is, yeah. You're exactly right. Uh, one last question for you. What, what can private citizens do to force change here? Is there anything we can do, Dr. Moore? Yeah, I mean, I think what we really need to do as a society first is to really find common ground in that we all want to live in safe communities uh, and that we all want to live in a system that's just and recognize that it's not just, you know, the typical subset, sub, or the typical suspects that we think of like, oh, these people are going to want to reform the justice system. Um, but we have to help people understand that reforming this system is actually about promoting public safety. Um, and so as private citizens, we need to have those conversations. And we also need to talk to our lawmakers about the need for change, right? Yes. Need for increased programming, uh, not just like within the prison, but with access to that outside of prison before the person in, uh, enters the institution, right? Yes. We support our public school system so people are getting access to their to education in a meaningful way that meets them where they're at, that doesn't leave them behind? Um, how can people have access to basic necessities that will not encourage them to move into, you know, selling drugs um, or, you know, whatever illegal activity that they may need to do to then pr sustain themselves and their families? Um and so we need to, we have to have those conversations. We have to tell our lawmakers that this is the public safety that we want. 
and you know, as a as a band-aid in the interim, which for the you know two million plus people behind bars right now, we need to tell our lawmakers that we want oversight. Yes, we want um, the prisons to be held accountable. That we we do not want people living in human inhumane conditions because that hurts our communities. It hurts the individual, it hurts their families, and it ultimately ends up hurting our communities. And so we have to talk to our lawmakers about that. And we also need to think about how do we um, reduce the incarceration population. There are far too many people behind bars for far too long, and there's there's good legislation out there that gets shot down year after year. Legislation like the Equal Act, which would impact 8,000 people incarcerated uh, in the federal system who have unjust crack cocaine charges right um largely because they're black and right they mix their cocaine with baking soda instead of just snorting it straight and so we need to think about what's the kind of legislation that will bring people home who don't need to be in prison any longer and how can we how can we as a community come around those people and ensure their success um so then they can go live out productive lives and make our communities ultimately safer indeed that was the voice of dr chelsea moore who is the policy manager for Dream Corps Justice. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take one more break and then come back. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, still here with John Kiriakou with a few last stories and headlines for you. I I had not heard this story before, John. This wild story about a man who's suing American Airlines, you know, speaking about police abuses and mix-ups and getting stuck in jail. He's suing American Airlines because he says the airline's misidentification of him led police to arrest him and then him to spend 17 days in jail before this uh, misidentification could be cleared up. So what happens is that in May 2020, someone broke into a duty-free shop in Dallas-Fort Worth Airport and stole some things and broke some things. The man who did that then got on the same flight as Michael Lowe, who is the plaintiff in this case. Airport police got a search warrant for any and all recorded travel data for everyone on the flight, according to court documents. But the lawsuit says the airline departed from its established procedures and identified just one passenger, Lowe, who, as you were just saying, does not actually look anything like the dude who's no. in the surveillance footage. No, he doesn't look anything at all like Something happened where they didn't send the police all of this information. They were just like, here's yeah, your it's man. it's this guy. According to this document, anyway. So a warrant is issued for his arrest in Texas. A year later... Because he doesn't know there's a warrant out for his arrest. No, he has no idea. A year later, he's arrested in New Mexico while he's at some event because police were looking for a suspect in a different case, and they ran his name through and found open warrants. Right. Uh, So he's booked into a New Mexico jail, which must have been a very confusing experience. You know, you're being arrested for burglarizing an airport store, and you're like, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking talking about. So he's booked into a jail in New Mexico. He spends eight days before he sees a magistrate, which is shocking to me. Although, again, I know you can just get stuck in there and be like, well, 
there's 25 other people ahead of you, you know, just just wait. Meanwhile, no one has any idea where you might be because your family doesn't know perhaps that you, you are in and out of jail. Yeah. Uh, then he's told that there's no bail because he's a fugitive, right? He's a fugitive from right, Texas. Because he's in a different state. Yeah. No bail. He uh, was released nine days later because sometime... Uh, sometime after his release, a detective got his mugshot and compared it to the photos and saw this is obviously not our guy. And so uh, he is suing quite rightly, right? Oh, yes. I'd sue if I'd uh, had to spend more too. than two weeks in Without jail over this case of misidentification. It's ridiculous. Uh, I have another story. Remember how we started the show with uh, bad news for the UK economy? Mm, uh, schadenfreude there was short-lived. Uh, the CNBC has a story out on uh, the results of its latest CNBC CFO Council survey, which I guess is the chief financial officer right. of companies they decide are important. Forty uh, percent of these CFOs cite inflation as the number one internal risk to their business. Uh, but basically, they, they are predicting that the economy and markets will get worse before they get better. Well, did you happen to see the, the piece in Barron's from a week ago? There, there were two interesting things. Jamie Dimon, the chairman of, of Citicorp or Citigroup or whatever they're calling Citibank these days, said the same thing, that we're going into a recession we just have to brace for it. It probably won't be deep or terribly long, but it's a recession. Not, and, let me just interrupt sure. you. Not a single one of the CFOs surveyed by CNBC thought there would not be a recession. I, so they're, yeah, all, I, they're all in agreement that it is coming. Well, they also found a, a recording that, that was surreptitiously made of Elon Musk talking about recession. And he said, we're all screwed. Right. We're going into a recession. It's going to be terrible and it's going to be bad for all of us. Yeah. So fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, one of the other headlines that I just saw come in here that's probably either coming out of the Summit of the Americas or going to be elaborated on in the Summit for the, of the Americas is the U.S. is pledging $331 million in, to fight food insecurity in Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, and of course, you know, they are saying Russia and Ukraine produce nearly a third of the world's traded wheat and barley. The headlines over the last couple of days have been about Russia stealing Ukrainian grain. That's right. Um, and, you know, and deliberately mm-hmm. causing people to starve in other parts of the world. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is like all the stuff out of the Ukraine war. So to sit around and then see what see what come later on the actual story is. Um, yeah, in fact, the United States warned African countries that these Russian ships that are headed toward Africa with don't grain. Don't buy it. Don't buy Don't that. buy it. Your people are starving, but don't buy this grain. Don't buy this purloined right. grain. Also, we're not going to do anything to help you. And yeah, That's I mean, right. the contrast between this 300, 331 million to the 40 billion going to the war effort, I feel like, uh, also speaks also speaks volumes. It's unforgivable. Yeah. Uh, so that's what we have there. Did you get to this story about, did you talk about this in the, um, in the monologue about the, the, uh, gubernatorial candidate has been arrested? No, yeah, no, it happened just before we started the show. Yeah. Uh, one of the Republican candidates for governor of Michigan, um, was arrested today and his house was raided and he was charged with a misdemeanor count of something related to the January 6th. Situation. Ryan Kelly running for governor of Michigan. Yeah. Oh, the fireworks are coming here. Yeah. All right. Oh, the fireworks are over for us. We got to get out of here. I want to say thanks to our engineers and producers, and of course, to all the guests that join us. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>